as I cracked the book of Proverbs, I saw there was all this wisdom in there, stuff that I could learn from. I found myself pausing and finding great ideas and I was humbled and I had something to learn. And then I set out to read the whole Bible and that changed me. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Ruth Jackson and The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, faith and ministry. The Profile is brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, the latest news, reviews, columnists and more. To request a free sample copy of the latest issue of the magazine, visit premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I am speaking to Professor Rosalind Picard, who has helped to create technology which has saved many people's lives. Rosalind is also one of the guests on The Big Conversation, which is a unique video series from Unbelievable, the flagship apologetics and theology discussion show here on Premier Christian Radio. The Big Conversation features video conversations between leading religious and non-religious voices, exploring science, faith, philosophy and what it means to be human. In episode two of the most recent series of The Big Conversation, Professor Rosalind Picard is joined by Professor Nick Bostrom to discuss artificial intelligence and whether the rise of new technologies has eliminated the need for God. You can find out more about The Big Conversation by heading to thebigconversation.show. You are listening to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio with me, Ruth Jackson, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Professor Rosalind Picard, who is an engineer based at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, as it is more commonly known. Rosalind is a multi-award winning scientist who is the founder and director of the Effective Computer Research Group at the MIT Media Lab. And she's also a faculty member of the MIT Center for Neurobiological Engineering, and she has co-founded two companies, Effectiva, which provides emotion AI technologies, and Empatica, which creates wearable sensors and analytics to improve health. And one of these products is a smartwatch, which is helping to save the lives of people with epilepsy. Rosalind, it's such a joy to have you here today. Thank you, Ruth. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, one of the questions, I sort of mentioned it there in the introduction, um, effective computing. You are a pioneer of this, but, but what, what does that mean to people who have no idea what that means? Well, it's effective with an A, hopefully confused nicely with effective with an E. <laughs> the idea originally was to give computers the skills of emotional intelligence, enabling them to know things like whether or not they're frustrating us, and then how to be smarter about preventing miserable experiences like that. And how did you get into that? I was studying how the brain worked, and I was trying to build uh, computers that worked a little bit more smartly, like our human brains do. And as I studied more and more about how perception works, how we see things, I learned that, surprisingly, these parts of the brain involved in emotion were playing a pivotal role, actually, in making us more intelligent, not less, which was the exact opposite of what I thought emotion did. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized that 
in order to really make machines smart, we needed to understand how emotion works in people. And so, I, I mean, you've obviously touched on it, but why do you think it's so important that we are trying to do this with computers? It's a big challenging area. Affective computing is about giving computers not just skills of emotional intelligence, but really about understanding the roles that emotions play in helping systems function with complex, unpredictable inputs and more flexible and intelligent ways. And as we learn more about how humans do this, we wind up learning more about the important role emotion plays and how we're made and how we function. And this helps us in a lot of things. It not only helps us build more intelligent computers, it also helps us build AI that helps people be healthier and interact better. Uh, in fact, our whole area of research has shifted somewhat from just trying to make the smartest computers to trying to make technology that helps people function better, help people understand their own feelings, help people communicate emotions better with one another and help us manage better regulating our own emotions and better preventing uh, diseases that are associated with problems with emotion. And some people would occasionally accuse academics of kind of being up in their ivory towers, coming up with these ideas that never really have an impact on, on normal everyday people. You certainly can't be accused of that. Lots of what you're doing has a, a real knock on effect on everyday people. Would you say a little bit about the smartwatch that has in some way helped people who are struggling with epilepsy? How, I mean, how did that come about? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny you say that because there, there was a time when I was just working on trying to make computers smarter. And one day the director of the media lab came to me and he said, Roz, when are you going to do something useful? And I said, you know, what do you, what do you want? You know, uh, my academic papers are useful enough. And he said, when are you going to give me? And we were building the first wearable computers and they looked really geeky and clunky. And he said, I want the mood ring that tells me my wife's mood before I go home. And I thought mood ring, you know, that was this stupid gimmick that just mapped skin temperature to a color. And it sold a lot. Probably if I sold something like that, I could pay for my research and stop having to write grant proposals. <laughs> but at MIT, we want to do something hard, right? And important. And so I really didn't take it seriously for the longest time. Uh, later, it turns out, this led to something quite surprising and interesting that we're now, uh, you know, that's now changed the direction of what we're doing. Um, but in the meantime, I, I set it aside and I tried to do some very different things. One of which was help people with autism who were struggling with uh, emotional communication. And I started by reading the literature and I learned that uh, from the literature that a lot of people on the autism spectrum have trouble reading other people's emotions. So we set out to build something to help them read other people's emotions. Uh, and one day, one of them says to me, actually by typing to talk, she types, Roz, you have it all wrong. Uh, you know, my biggest problem is not reading other people's emotion. Uh, she said, my biggest problem is you're not reading my emotion. And I felt terrible. I shrunk to about an inch high and I thought, oh no, I work on emotion. You know, how am I screwing this up so badly? What am I missing? What have I not read properly? And I'm so sorry. And she said, you're not reading my stress accurately. 
and she said, furthermore, it's not just you, it's everyone is not reading my stress accurately, which made me feel slightly better. <laughs> but still, you know, what what is it? And I realized that the way that many people experience uh, stress is um, it's the you know, we all experience stress, but the way that they express it, the way that they show it can look very different. They may look calm and shut down on the outside, like they're just detached, when in fact on the inside, they're about to explode. And in fact, they may burst out into a behavior that hurts themselves or another. Uh, and it may look like it comes from nowhere, but in fact, it's been stewing the whole time. Uh, and I realized as I listened and learned more from her and from others that we really were not reading the emotions right of many people on the autism spectrum. And we could start by building a sensor, in this case, a wearable that could monitor the autonomic stress, the sympathetic nervous system response, this part of your body that activates your fight or flight response and a whole lot of other things. It sends messages to just about every organ in your body. Um, thus, it's also implicating a lot of health conditions. We'll set that aside for the moment. Um, but we set out to build a wearable that could help communicate that inward um, fight or flight response, uh, even when outwardly the person looked pretty chill. That then uh, became what looked like sort of a fluffy sweatband. We had you know pink fluffy ones and basketball ones and all kinds of uh, funny themes. And one of them, uh, well, actually one day, a young student in the lab knocked on my door. Uh, it was right at the end of the December part of the semester. And he asked, could I please borrow a couple, could I please borrow one of your sensors for my little brother? He has autism and he can't talk. And I wonder if I could see what's stressing him out over the vacation break. And I said, sure. In fact, don't just take one, take two, because they were hand-built and they often broke back then. So he takes two and he puts them on his little brother at the same time. I thought he should you know, wait till one broke and then use the second one. Um, but I'm really glad he didn't follow my instructions. Uh, I'm back at MIT looking at his little brother's data on my laptop. And it looked like both wrists were streaming a signal that stayed pretty low. And this signal that we were measuring, uh, you can roughly think of it as like a sweat response. When you get nervous and stressed, you get a little sweaty, palms of your hand may sweat and the signal goes up. But it turns out the signal is even more sensitive and it can change with uh, stress that doesn't cause your hands to get sweaty. So I was looking for it and I was looking for little changes in stress. And the whole day, the kid looked pretty chill. And I go on the screen to the next day of graphs and both wrists are still pretty flat. And the next day, same thing. And I thought, well, this little boy doesn't look like he's having much stress over his vacation. And I go to the next day and my jaw drops. One of the wrists had a signal so big that I thought the sensor must be broken. And the other side wasn't changing at all. And I, I was completely baffled. Like, okay, maybe the side that's so big is broken. Something weird must have happened there. Because you can't have stress on one side of your body and not the other, right? <laughs> like, how could this be? Um, so I'm an electrical engineer by training. I did a bunch of debugging, trying to figure out what could cause that signal peak to look like that because it also looked perfectly normal afterwards. In fact, afterwards, there was this other pattern in the data that we see in deep sleep. And as I uh, ran my tests, I came up empty. Nothing, nothing worked. Uh, so 
I resorted to old fashioned debugging. I picked up the phone and I called the student at home on vacation, which made me a little stressed because usually I leave my students alone on vacation. Uh, and I said, hi, um, how's your little brother? How was your Christmas? Uh, do you have any idea what happened to him? And I gave him the exact date and time and the data. And he said, I don't know, I'll check the diary. And I thought with like a quick prayer, like, dear God, what, like, what are the odds he wrote down this thing? You know, please, if there's any, any chance, you know, um, there's something here, help us. So I wait and he comes back and he has the exact date and time uh, recorded in the diary. And he says, that was, that peak I saw was right before he had a grand mal seizure. Now, I didn't know anything about seizures other than some false stuff I had heard back when I was in grade school. And I quickly started to do some more research. I realized another student's father was the head of epilepsy surgery at the local children's hospital. So I screw up my courage again. And I called Dr. Joe Madsen at Children's Hospital Boston, ranked number one children's hospital in America. And I'm like, uh, um, hi, my name is Rosalind Picard. Do you know if it's possible that a child could have a huge sympathetic nervous system surge, I wanted to sound medical, uh, right before, in this case, 20 minutes before a seizure? And he said, um, probably not. But he said, you know, it's interesting. We've had people whose hair stands on end on one arm 20 minutes before a seizure. Now, I hadn't wanted to tell him it was just one side because I thought he'd hang up on me. Uh, but in fact, at that point, I said, really, on just one side? And he's like, yes. And I said, our peak was on just one side. Well, he got very interested. I showed him the data. We got um, safety certified ethics board approval. And next thing you know, we're enrolling 90 children in a carefully controlled study. They all have seizures that are not responding to medication. We measure the electrodermal activity, this skin conductance response on both wrists. Uh, concurrently with the gold standard video, EEG uh, on their head, ECG, electrocardiogram on their chest. And we monitor these signals during all their seizures. And we found that in 100% of the children's grand mal seizures, they were having this large response on the wrist. It turns out that it was not 20 minutes before most seizures. Usually it was happening at the same exact time that the brain activity started. So at the same time, the seizure is happening. And usually it was happening on both wrists with a generalized seizure. So we didn't have a seizure forecaster, but it turned out we suddenly had the ability to build a little AI to run on a wristband to do uh, seizure detection of the most dangerous kind of seizure. Wow, and there was a story you told on a TED talk that you did, I guess in some ways a kind of a similar situation where um, a young girl was effectively saved by her mother through this, well, a, a more developed version of this technology. Would you say just a little bit about that? Because it's a remarkable story. Yes. One of the things we learned, we were trying to figure out like, why is this signal so big? And you know, was it related to how sweaty people got with convulsions or something? And everything we tested did not work, except for one thing. We learned that there's a signature in the brain that was correlated with our signal. And that signature in the brain is related to the number one cause of death for people with epilepsy, uh, which most people have never heard of, and they should have, because it takes more lives in the world every year than, than SIDS, sudden infant death. 
In fact, they now think SIDS may be due to this mechanism. And uh, what we learned is that in uh, a lot of cases, there's some changes deep in the brain that can turn off your breathing. And they can also turn off electrical activity near the scalp. Now the electrical activity near the scalp will often come back after a seizure, but the breathing, it turns out, when, when this activation deep in your brain turns off your breathing, something as simple as somebody stimulating you, not in 100% of cases, but in a lot of cases, something as simple as somebody turning you on your side or saying your name or getting you to talk or breathe um, can restart breathing that is switched off by this electrical activity in the brain. So a seizure can spread to this amygdala region of the brain, turn off your breathing, but if you're there and you flip them over and talk to them, they may start breathing again. However, if they're alone, they're less likely to start breathing again, and they're more likely to die of this condition called sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, or SUDEP, S-U-D-E-P, uh, which is taking uh, lives every, it's taking lives every few minutes right now. So what we wanted to do was figure out how to help get somebody there in time to stimulate. Uh, so we built this device to not only detect seizures, but to alert somebody to come, to alert a caregiver. And in the early days of testing it, uh, one of the families that had it sends me a mail, the mom sends me a mail early in the morning, you know, I'm having my coffee in front of the computer and I open this mail and she says she had been in the shower her phone was next to her on the counter. Uh, she, it goes off saying her daughter might be having a seizure. She goes running out of the shower to her daughter's room, finds her face down in bed, blue, um, having just had a seizure, not breathing. And she flips her daughter over and her daughter takes a breath and another breath and turns pink again. Um, I'm reading this email and I think I'm turning white <laughs> reading this. Uh, she says her daughter is fine. She sends me pictures of her daughter that day. I'm, I'm sending an email going, oh no, you can't, you know, what if the battery dies? What if the Bluetooth doesn't connect? You can't trust this technology, you know? And she's like, it's okay. I know no technology is perfect, but your Embrace device just got me there in time to save my daughter's life. Uh, and since then we have heard lots of stories like that. Now, it's not perfect. There are some cases where the device isn't gonna work perfectly, or even if a doctor's there, there's some kinds of seizures that just having you there is not gonna uh, be enough. Um, but there are lots and lots of cases where it is getting somebody there in time and they are able to save a person's life. So exciting. Do, do you think there's a scope for this technology to, to be developed for other medical conditions as well, sort of going forward into the future? Yes, we now know that there are, uh, we, we now know a lot more about the neurological connections to what we're measuring. And we know that these regions of the brain that activate the signal are also key in anxiety. They're key in some kinds of depression. Uh, they're key in, we think, some kinds of Alzheimer's and in a lot of other disorders that people have, you know, thought, gosh, you know, you can get information when people are in a scanner, but you can't get information when people are walking around in daily life. Well, it turns out that when we were all formed in, uh, when we were all embryos, uh, we were made with three kinds of tissue, the ectoderm, the endoderm, and the mesoderm. And the ectoderm from the moment we were formed 
uh, knit together our brain, our spinal cord, our whole neural system with the skin. And there are connections that remain, not just in this developmental history, but that remain today between uh, brain activity deep and manifestations we can measure on the skin. Now, it's been through some transformations. It's not a simple one-to-one -one mapping, uh, but there's information in the skin, which means that wearables can now get more than we thought they could. They don't just get our activity, like if we're you know, counting steps or we're holding still and we might be asleep, um, but they're getting much more interesting information than we ever imagined. And when you say wearables, that's just a piece of tech that goes somewhere on your body. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's funny. In the early days when we started wearing our technology, we weren't quite sure what to call it. And we originally thought, I was with a group of people forming the first technical committee on wearable computing. And we were gonna call the first conference the Wearable Computing Conference or <laughs> conferences always get acronyms. So it would be WC for short. And one of our European guests was like, mm, that's how they abbreviate toilets in Europe. You might want a better acronym than that. So we called it Wearable Information Technology, WIT. Um, but wearable computing has, has stuck. And to shorten it, we just started calling it wearables. Now, I guess it's sort of most child's dream to, to one day work with robots, with artificial intelligence. Was that something you always wanted to do as a child? No, um, I actually really didn't like science. I thought science was boring. <laughs> I remember you know, being asked to dissect a frog and I thought it really stunk. I didn't, I didn't like it. It was boring. It was all like rote learning facts about stuff that I thought was uninteresting. Where I started to get interested was I, I liked math, I liked English, I liked stories, I liked, I started to like physics. I liked things that moved and did things. And when the math actually modeled something, when the math was useful, when building the mathematical model actually predicted what would happen, I thought that was cool. And then I started to think computers were kind of cool and satellites were kind of cool and you know later smartphones. And I wanted to know how things worked. And actually the coolest part of science is not memorizing a bunch of boring stuff in books. It's about discovering things people don't know. It's about being curious. It's about asking why things in the world around you are the way they are and trying to figure out why. And once I got actually past all the rote book knowledge and started to learn that you could discover that stuff and invent things and make them better, then I thought it was cool. So really it wasn't until uh, you know, college that I started to find it really neat. And what have been, this might be really hard to whittle down, but what have been some of the big highs and, and potentially some of the lows as well of your career so far? You know, getting to be at a place like MIT, it's definitely been a high. I mean, being in a community of people who just love learning and figuring things out and who are humble and, you know, it's not about them, right? Very few people here are like obsessed with themselves. Most people just want to really achieve a better world and being around people like that is so energizing and wonderful uh, it's a blessing to get to work with people who are you know just trying to invent a better future uh, so MIT and the media lab are just like heaven when it comes to uh, being in a place where people just want to make the world better um, I'd say those those that's like the best is being a part of uh, folks trying to do good like that there are certainly a lot of lows along the way. And, you know, some students were asking the other day to tell stories of failure. And I realized I have to think hard. 
them up with them, not because they aren't there, but because I like to put them past me. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're there every step of the way. You know, when I actually think back just systematically to everything that's happened, you know, my first job uh, application, I was rejected. My first proposal I submitted was rejected. My first paper I submitted was rejected. I mean, there's just a lot of you try things and they don't work. Uh, but don't stay with that, right? I regularly uh, look for feedback. In my life, I'm a Christian and I ask God for guidance. I ask for what I should be doing. I ask to take whatever I've done and uh, transform it to something that, you know, achieves the will of the one who knows much better than any scientist what is good for people, what the world needs. Uh, you know, what do we know, right? Our knowledge is but a small sliver, a small shadow of the grand mind that knows all. So I find that subjecting my uh, will, my desires, my plan uh, to God and asking God, like, what should I do? That is magnificent. Uh, and so there've been lots of times along the way when I've been, uh, you know, like frustrated with something. I'll read the Bible, say something like, stop grumbling, <laughs> do things without grumbling. So I'm like, okay, God, you know, help convert my, my frustrations to something better. Uh, and then like, ideas of what to do will come to me. For example, the whole area of affective computing came to me when I was praying while driving home uh, that I should stop grumbling about my long commute. <laughs> and I, that time became a time when I just listened and came up with new areas to work on that I did not even wanna work on, right? And yet they came to me and I trusted and I started working on them and they became something bigger and greater than I would have ever, ever come up with on my own. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. Do you think there are certain fields of science that it's harder to break into if you're a woman? There are definitely still a lot of things that are easier for people who look a certain way than for people who look and sound another way. And for better or for worse, uh, there are just a lot of biases. You know, if you, if you look at how people learn, they take the data they have and they learn from it. And this is now very clear in machine learning. Like if you train a face recognizer on a bunch of, uh, you know, white males, it will be really good at recognizing white males and it will not be good at everybody else. Uh, and similarly, you know, if a bunch of scientists are used to seeing that the most successful scientists are white males, then they're going to uh, probably not instantly assume the best of success for people who don't look like that. So yeah, unfortunately, there are a lot of things that are harder if you don't look like the dominant group of people who have achieved in a certain area. And, you know, I think we have to kind of help an area change. Uh, God gifts 
all people with curiosity, with inventiveness, with ideas, and in science and engineering and technology more than ever, because technology now affects everybody, we need the people designing it to look like everybody. We need them to be everybody. Uh, I was talking to the most diverse uh, school in New England the other day, which happens to be a Christian private school. Uh, Christian schools in America tend to be the most diverse schools. And the students, many of whom, um, you know, never thought they would be interested in science or engineering were coming up afterwards going, wow, I didn't know that even I with my art and story interests could help with this technology or that I with my design interests could help. And I'm, you know, encouraging, yes, we need people with all gifts and skills to help shape the future of technology. We need the storytellers to help us decide what it should do. We need people who know how to make people's lives better tell us, look, this is not good. <laughs> this is not helping. How about doing something like this instead, right? Because if it's all just conceived and designed and carried out by people who prefer math to people, then that's not going to lead to the future we want. <laughs> and Roz, you weren't always a Christian, were you? Would you say just a little bit about what your experience of God was growing up as a child? Yeah, as, as a child, I grew up in a family that never went to church, never talked about uh, religion. And there was a there were a couple of Bibles in the house, but I never saw anybody open them. We did celebrate Christmas, but not in a religious way. We didn't even go to church on Christmas and Easter. We weren't even what they call the CNE Christians. We just didn't practice. And for me, it was just a secular set of myths. And I thought, uh, yeah, kind of like I believe in the spirit of being good, but about, I don't know, middle of grade school or whatever, I declared myself an atheist. I thought people who were religious had thrown their brains out the window and, it, you know, being down South also gave me a lot of bad examples in the media that made me not even want to learn about it, much less set foot in a church. It was... Uh, to my surprise once when I was babysitting for this really cool family, you know, um, he was a doctor and she was really neat and our house was modern and our kids were cool. Everything was cool about this family. Uh, and they had, they had hired me as a babysitter while they were going to Bible studies and they invited me to go to church with them. And I was not interested <laughs> in going to church. And I, uh, was trying to find a nice way to say no. Uh, and so I, just told them I didn't feel well that weekend when they invited me. And then they invited me the next weekend and I told them again that I was sick. Now, this is a little bit of a problem faking sickness to a doctor uh, week <laughs> after week. It really wasn't working. Finally, they just got caught on to me that I just didn't want to go. Um, and they said, you know, it matters maybe not the most um, whether or not you go to church, but it does matter uh, what you believe. Um, have you read the Bible? And I considered my, you know, I was a straight A student, one of those nerdy little obnoxious kids who um, I thought myself really smart. So I thought, okay, well, you know, I've, I, we have a Bible. I've heard it's the best selling book of all time. I guess I should have read it. So I agreed uh, to take his advice to read the book of Proverbs, uh, to read one a day for a month. And as I cracked the book of Proverbs, I saw there was all this wisdom in there that it was full of not wacky, stupid, you know, made up gobbledygook, but in fact, 
stuff that I could learn from. I found myself pausing and finding great ideas. And I realized I was humbled and I had something to learn. And then I set out to read the whole Bible and that changed me. Was there something in particular that changed you or was it a kind of knock-on effect over time? It took some time because I did not want to believe in God and I did not want to be religious and I resisted. Uh, As I read the Bible though, again, sort of with this intellectual superiority complex of I just should have read this, I, it, it, it's weird. It's it's not like I heard voices and I need to see a neurologist or something. I, I felt God talking to me. Like, you, you know how sometimes there's like a voice that, not that you hear, but like a, that's driving you. And I felt like I was being spoken to, uh, that this was not just like a regular book of wisdom I was reading. Uh, and that and gradually I started to believe in God. And I, I'll have to say I, I resisted it. I uh, started to, th- this took quite a while, okay, because I kept kind of, I, I actually read the Bible um, in its entirety multiple times. Because, <laughs> and then I started to read other uh, religious books because I thought, okay, wait, if God's talking to me here, maybe if I read some other books, God will talk to me there too. Maybe I'm just a product of my culture being attracted to this Judeo-Christian message. So I started studying world religions and thinking maybe this will, I'll pass through this, right? I'll get through this. Uh, So as I studied other great books and world religions, I actually came to believe in God and then through uh, an additional process, decided to take a risk uh, and start believing in Jesus. Um, And not just believing, but later I was further challenged on that uh, to not just believe in Jesus, but one day in church, one day I was uh, visiting this church with a, so actually there's a whole another set of transitions. This was, I was kind of dragged through this process, I think by God, because I did not want to go. Later, I was in college, and I, uh, this young man who had been like the most valuable player, not just on the basketball team, but also on the football team, really straight A student, smart, wonderful guy, he invited me to church. And I decided, well, maybe it is finally time to go to church. <laughs> he was a pretty cool guy. Uh, and in church, I was very frustrated because they were making all these claims, and I wanted to raise my hand. And I'm looking at him like, why aren't people raising their hand? I want to ask questions. Uh, and I realized you kind of do that in Sunday school. Okay, I go to Sunday school and I ask all these questions. And it was in that church that the pastor challenged us to not just believe, but to go another step. To, he asked us, who is Lord of your life? And I realized, I thought I was Lord of my life. Now I'm the one calling the shots here. And at that point, uh, he, he challenged us to consider inviting Jesus to be Lord of our life. And that sounded a little wacky to me. Uh, But when I decided to run it as a scientific experiment, like, okay, I'll just try this. And if it's really stupid, it won't make any difference if it doesn't really (laughs) matter. Um, And if it makes a difference, well, my goodness, wouldn't it be better to have the mind of the whole universe, like God who knows everything, Lord of my life? I mean, who wouldn't say yes to that? Uh, So I took that extra step invited Jesus to be Lord of my life. And it was 
incredible. It actually made this enormous set of differences. And you're obviously a Christian working in science. Have you ever found it difficult to reconcile your Christian faith with science? I have never found any uh, problems between Christianity and science. Uh, The classic debates and arguments, if you dissect them and look into them, they're really more problems with how people kind of wrongly interpret things. Uh, In fact, you'll find through history and even etched in stone at MIT, names of great scientists who were also very devout Christians, uh, people who, I mean, even people like Isaac Newton wrote significantly more about his Christian faith than about science. So you'll find lots of cases where there is no discrepancy. There's just uh, great inspiration and strength to be drawn from Christian faith. In fact, you could also argue that uh, the whole enterprise of looking for order and meaning in the universe presupposes that it's there, that it's not just random, purposeless, meaningless uh, forces floating around with no origin. Have you ever received backlash for being a Christian who works in the area of science? Yes, there is backlash. Uh, I, I have sometimes had some respected colleagues say to me, you know, how can you believe that? What? You go to church? How can you, you know, and all I do is just remind myself that I used to think exactly the same thing. I, I used to also think people who believed in uh, Christianity, God, Jesus, or any religion must have just uh, not thought about it. And in fact, it's the opposite. I had not thought as deeply about it. And I think many of them have not thought as deeply about it. And they're quick to judge based on what they see outwardly. And that is a good way to make mistakes. Your area of work obviously brings you into contact with a lot of people who experience great suffering in their life. I know you're obviously not a theologian, but have you ever really thought about and tried to kind of reconcile the idea of a good God with the problem of pain? Oh, yes. Yeah, that is one of the hardest questions we we face, right? When you see the pain, you know, when I see a family dealing with, um, you know, their little girl having 20 seizures in one night, right? Many of them taking her breath away. Oh, it is so heartbreaking, right? Why does God allow such pain, such suffering? Um, Why does God allow, uh, you know, death in this life as we see? And there are so many horrible things that go on and we don't have the answers to all of them. I, um, I, I don't mean to make this sound superficial, but I, I, I think so often, you know, we're like the little child in the family, you know, and mom and dad are demanding that we, you know, eat those nasty green things on our plate, you know, or go to bed early or bathe or all these things that, that make us mad and we hate them. And it seems unfair and wrong and, and revolting and, uh, you know, we are getting a shot and that's painful. And why should I? I don't want that needle, you know. Um, As a child, it's like our world is ending with these things. Uh, We just don't know, right? We just don't know. And there's so much we don't know um, right now. Uh, We are are given um, a couple of things. We're given the presence of Jesus who enters into suffering with us, uh, which is fascinating, right? 
right? That God enters into that with us and comes along us, uh, comes alongside us. And we're told to do that with one another too. Um, and we see transformative post-traumatic growth coming out of so many of these cases, which is also amazing. Um, and then we're also told that there's a, a realm beyond this one uh, where it's all worthwhile, you know, that um, now we see as through a glass dimly, uh, but then face to face and that that suffering will end uh, and that Jesus, God has conquered death, right? So there's something greater to all of this. And I, I believe that holding on to those truths uh, and that belief in things beyond is very powerful. Uh, and the alternative of it all being meaningless and purposeless, uh, you know, is a really rotten way to live. <laughs> so, you know, can we prove all this is true 100% um, like in a scientific or mathematical way? Um, no, we can't, we, we need a, an element of faith in it. Uh, but does it make a difference in how we live our lives when we believe that? It makes a huge difference. We see that over and over and over. So there's huge evidence for uh, you know, God entering in and bringing comfort and that purpose and meaning can come out of this. I suppose one area that we see lots of suffering and struggles, um, I'm sure it must be the same in the US, but particularly in the UK, is the sort of rise in the mental health crisis among our children and young people. Mm -hmm. And you're the founding faculty chair of Heart and Mind, which is the MIT sort of well-being yeah, initiative. Yeah, Mind, Hand, Heart. Oh, uh, sorry, wrong way around. It's um, hard to say. Yeah, <laughs> MIT's motto is Mind and Hand, Mensa Nanus. And when... Uh, we had um, years ago, Megan Smith was chief technology officer for the um, United States, and she is an alum of the MIT Media Lab. And she came to give the commencement speech. And she said to the MIT uh, students and graduates and their families, you know, MIT's motto is mind and hand, but really MIT is about mind, hand and heart. And that stuck beautifully. And our culture today has embraced that. We're not just about thinking and learning and doing, uh, but we're about learning how to matter, uh, how to take care of the whole person. And it's actually a challenge because now we know there's mind and hand and heart, but there's also spirit. And I don't think MIT is quite ready to add that to the motto, <laughs> but we do recognize that we are mind, hand, heart, and spirit. And our science is also finding over and over that attending to all of these in a person is important for well-being. Ros, if there was anything that you could go back and say to your teenage self, sort of having learned everything that you've learned, all the experiences that you've had over the years, is there one thing that springs to mind that you would say? Huh. Um, you're asking tough questions. <laughs> You know, I wish I had known how awesome it is to have a relationship with God sooner. It would have brought me greater peace sooner. When, when I became a Christian, I, I didn't realize that I was under this heavy burden and this heavy load and having so much stress because I think you just get used to it. And you don't notice it's there. Um, but when I became a Christian, this load was lifted. I felt amazing peace. I felt uh, like there's this awesome companion that 
like deals that you could just hand your heavy burdens to that takes away anxiety and allows you the freedom to take risks and be courageous and you know learn and love and so many amazing opportunities that I think I could have had a lot sooner. Uh, so I would encourage people to take that risk of figuring out who's Lord of your life a little sooner. And I suppose on a similar note, if you were going to give some advice to a young Christian who's wanting to pursue a career in science, is there anything that you would say? Yeah, science is an awesome career. And I would encourage you to, uh, as you pursue your science, keep talking to the, the greatest scientific mind of, of it all, asking not just to give you the desires of your heart in terms of what you should desire, in terms of what you should study. And because I believe God will uh, give you passion for the area that uh, you want to learn about that could do, do good in the world, but also ask some other practical questions like what do people, what are they usually able to do with this science? Um, who funds the science? What are their motives? Uh, who and what is this making better uh, in our world? You know, is this just going to make some uh, powerful individuals at the top of a few companies more powerful and more wealthy? Or is this something that's bringing greater justice across uh, the world? And if it's not bringing greater justice, maybe you could figure out how to make it uh, create more justice in the world. So I would ask a bunch of um, not only God, what should I study kinds of questions and fill my heart with passion for what I can do the most good with, uh, but also very practical questions about what kind of difference this kind of innovation could make in our world. Tiny little question to finish. Um, what do you think is the future of artificial intelligence? Is there kind of anything that's bubbling away that you know of that um, that you can reveal? Or I, I assume a lot of what you're working on is quite secret. But I suppose, yeah, if, what, where, where are we going with intelligent design? What, what are we going to see in the future? There, there are two main camps working. One is working to just make AIs that are more autonomous and smart, uh, more like robots that can function in high capacity roles. Our lab has, it, it's still doing a little bit of that, but in very scripted roles uh, that support people. Um, where I'm much more excited and I think is a much more important area of AI is AI that supports human health and well-being. And this is AI that doesn't necessarily look like a robot or a software agent. Uh, it's AI that helps you learn what things you're doing that make, uh, make you well. And this is hard because people usually don't notice anything until they're sick. <laughs> and then there's diagnostic criteria and treatments. What we want to do is figure out how to keep people well. And that's much harder. And this is where AI can kind of help us figure out what are people doing uh, long before they get sick that's keeping them well versus making them more fragile. What's keeping them resilient versus making them more likely when the big stressor comes along to snap. And AI is actually really helpful at monitoring those very slow, tiny changes that we don't even notice. We don't usually notice them until you're in trouble. And we would like to notice early, you know, is this early signs of dementia? Is this early signs of uh, 
of mental health problems. Is this an early sign of a viral infection? In fact, now we've got new AI running uh, with the smartwatches, like our epilepsy watch embrace to also detect changes in your physiology that are early indicators of a viral infection. And this is a big test right now uh, in the US and the UK. So we'll see how, how well it works. Uh, but it's very exciting to look at AI that helps us be healthier and live better lives. Brilliant. Roz, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. That was Professor Rosalind Picard speaking to me, Ruth Jackson, here on Premier Christian Radio. Rosalind is also one of the guests on The Big Conversation, where she was joined by Professor Nick Bostrom to discuss artificial intelligence and whether the rise of new technologies has eliminated the need for God. You can find out more about The Big Conversation by heading to thebigconversation.show.